0: What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Would you not think yourself fortunate to have a secretary of great ability and worth absolutely subject day and night to your will and so susceptible to instructions that even your slightest mental suggestion would be faithfully carried out? If you had such a secretary, and knew that in spite of his great ability, he would be able to do what you suggested only in proportion to your belief in his power to do so. Would you not be careful to entertain no doubts of his ability to carry out your wishes or suggestions? Now, just substitute for this personal secretary your subconscious self, that part of you which is below the threshold of your consciousness and try to realize that this self is actually the sort of secretary I have endeavored to describe, capable of carrying out all your desires, of executing all your purposes, of realizing your ambitions to the exact extent of your belief in its powers, and you will get some idea of what it can accomplish for you. This secretary is closer to you than your breath, nearer than your heartbeat, a faithful servant walking by your side all through life to execute your faintest wish, to carry out your desires, to help you to achieve your aims. Every bit of help, of encouragement, of support you give to this other self will add the magnificence, the splendor of your destiny. On the other hand, all negative, vicious thoughts, all selfishness, greed and envy, all doubts and fears, all the discouraging destructive thoughts you entertain will impair and weaken your secretary or servant in exact proportion to their intensity and persistency. In fact, it rests with yourself whether your secretary shall be your greatest help, a heavenly friend and assistant, or your greatest hindrance, your worst enemy. It doesn't matter what we call them, subconscious and conscious self, or subjective and objective mind. We are all conscious that these are two forces constantly at work in us. One commands and the other obeys. We know that one of these, the subjective mind, does not originate its acts but gets its instruction from the objective mind, which contains the willpower. Experience shows us that the subjective or subconscious mind, which I have called a personal secretary, is a servant which obeys our will, carries out our wishes, and registers in the brain a faithful record not only of every thought, word, and act of ours, but of everything we see and everything we hear others say. Coleridge tells of a remarkable instance of the truth of this. A young German servant girl was taken ill with fever and in her delirium she recited correctly long passages from famous authors in Latin, Greek and Hebrew. Scholars were called in to hear this uneducated girl speaking fluently tongues of which she had no knowledge in her conscious moments and to tell if they could what it meant. They were much puzzled and could make nothing of it, but later the miracle was explained. Years before it seems the girl had lived in a minister's family and was accustomed to hear the master recite the classics aloud. She had listened attentively, and her subconscious mind had faithfully recorded every word in her brain, and reproduced what it had heard when the objective mind was quiescent. Numerous instances might be cited to show that our subconscious mind is the record storehouse of all that has ever happened to us. Every thought, every experience, whatever passes before the eye, or that we see or hear or feel is registered accurately in our brain by our subconscious mind. Now, if this other self, personal secretary, subconscious mind, or whatever we choose to call it, has such enormous power, why can it not be trained to work for us when we are asleep as well as when we are awake? Have you ever thought of the possibilities of spiritual and mental development during sleep? Has it ever occurred to you that while the process of repair and upbuilding are proceeding normally in the body, the mind also may be expanding, the soul as well as the body may be growing? When corporal and voluntary things are quiescent, the Lord operates, said Swedenborg. The great Swedish philosopher was a firm believer in the activity of the other self during sleep. He claimed that his spiritual vision was opened in the unconscious hours of the night. The Bible teems with illustrations of the activity of the subconscious mind or self during sleep. Warnings are given, work is commanded to be done, visions are seen, plans are outlined, angels are conversed with, courses of conduct advised, and every suggestion made to the soul in the dream state is literally carried out in the waking hours. Theosophists believe that during sleep the soul or spirit acts independently of the body, that it actually leaves the body and goes out into the night to perform tasks appointed by the Creator. As a matter of fact, few people realize what an immense amount of work is carried on automatically in the body under the direction of the subconscious mind. If the entire brain and nervous system were to go to sleep at night, all of the bodily functions would stop. The heart would cease to beat. The stomach, the liver, the kidneys, and other glands would no longer act the various digestive processes would cease to operate. All the physical organs would cease working, and we should stop breathing. One of the deepest mysteries of nature's processes is that of putting a part of the brain and nervous system, and most of the mental faculties which were in use during the day, under the sweet ether of sleep while she repairs and rejuvenates every cell and every tissue but at the same time keeping in the most active condition a great many of the bodily processes and even certain of the mental and creative faculties. These are awake and alert all the time while the sleeper is in a state of unconsciousness. Most of us probably have had the experience of dropping to sleep at night discouraged because we could not solve some vexing problem to our satisfaction. It may have been one in mathematics during our school days or later on a weightier one in business or professional life and behold in the morning without any conscious effort on our part the problem was solved all its intricacies were unraveled and what had so puzzled us the night before was perfectly clear when we woke up in the morning our conscious objective self did not enter the mysterious laboratory where the miracle was wrought we do not know how it was wrought we only know it was done somehow without our knowledge while we slept some of our greatest inventions and discoveries have been worked out by the subconscious mind during sleep many an inventor who went to sleep with a puzzled brain discouraged and disheartened because he could not make the connecting link between his theory and its practical application awoke in the morning with his problem solved mathematicians and astronomers have had marvelous results worked out while they slept answers to questions which had puzzled them beyond measure during their waking hours writers, poets, painters, musicians, have all received inspiration for their work while the body slumbered. Many people attempt to explain these things on a purely physical basis. They attribute the apparent phenomenon to the mere fact that the brain has been refreshed and renewed during the night, and that, consequently, we can think better and more clearly in the morning. That is true, so far as it goes, but there is something more, something beyond this. We know that ideas are suggested and problems actually worked out along lines which did not occur to the waking mind. Most of us have had experiences of some kind or another which show that there is some great principle, some intelligent power back of the flesh, but not of it, which is continually active in our lives, helping us to solve our problems. One of the most interesting instances of this kind is given in the biography of the great scientist. Professor Louis Agassiz, by his widow. He, Professor Agassiz, the writer says, had been for two weeks striving to decipher the somewhat obscure impression of a fossil fish on the stone slab in which it was preserved. Weary and perplexed, he put his work aside at last and tried to dismiss it from his mind. Shortly after, he waked one night persuaded that while asleep he had seen this fish with all the missing features perfectly restored. But when he tried to hold and make fast the image it escaped him nevertheless he went early to the jardin de plant thinking that on looking anew at the impression he should see something which would put him on the track of his vision in vain the blurred record was as blank as ever the next night he saw the fish again but with no more satisfactory result when he woke it disappeared from his memory as before hoping that the same experience might be repeated On the third night, he placed a pencil and paper beside his bed before going to sleep. Accordingly, towards morning, the fish reappeared in his dream, confusedly at first, but at last with such distinctness that he had no longer any doubt as to its zoological characters. Still, half-dreaming, in perfect darkness, he traced these characters on the sheet of paper at the bedside. In the morning he was surprised to see in his nocturnal sketch features which he thought it impossible the fossil itself should reveal. He hastened to the jardin des Plantes, and with his drawing as a guide succeeded in chiseling away the surface of the stone under which portions of the fish proved to be hidden. When wholly exposed it corresponded with his dream and his drawing and he succeeded in classifying it with ease. We are all familiar with examples of the marvelous feats performed by somnambulists. They will get up and rest while fast asleep, lock and unlock doors, go out and walk and ride in the most dangerous places where they would not attempt to go when awake. Many have been known to walk with sure feet along the extreme edges of roofs of houses, on the banks of rivers, or close to the edge of precipices, where one false step would participate them to death. They will speak, write, act, and move as if entirely conscious of what they are doing. A somnambulist will answer questions put to him while asleep and carry on a conversation rationally. In this respect, the state of the sleepwalker is similar to that of a person in a hypnotic trance. He can be acted on from without and remain wholly unconscious. Surgical operations have been performed upon a hypnotized person without the use of anesthetics. And there is no doubt that this also would be possible during profound sleep. The subjective mind is much more susceptible to suggestion when the objective mind is unconscious. There is no resistance on account of prejudice or external influences. That we are on the eve of marvelous possibilities of treating disease during sleep, there is not the slightest doubt. The same is true of habit forming, mind changing, of mind improving, of strengthening deficient faculties, of eradicating peculiarities and idiosyncrasies, of neutralizing injurious hereditary tendencies, of increasing ability. The possibilities of changing the disposition and of mind building during sleep are only beginning to be realized. The power of the subjective mind over the body is well illustrated by the fact that thoughts aroused in a hypnotized person can very materially shift the circulation of the blood they can send it at will to any part of the body. The hypnotist can make his subject blush or turn pale, express in his face fierce anger or appealing love. He can at will produce anesthesia in any part of the body so that a needle or knife may be inserted in the flesh without causing the slightest pain. He can also impress the hypnotized person's mind with the belief that the water he drinks is whiskey, that he will actually exhibit all the appearance of drunkenness. He can make him believe that the spoonful of water he takes is full of poison, so that he will immediately develop the symptoms of poisoning. The subjective mind is not only capable of carrying out orders, but, as has already been shown, every impression made on it is indelible. How often we say when we cannot recall a well-known name or the details of some important event or experience. Well, I cannot think of that now, but it will come to me. I shall think of it later. And how often have the forgotten details flashed into our mind when the occasion has passed and we were thinking of something else. Again and again, we have puzzled our brains at night, trying to think of some particular thing which has gone out of our memory, only to find it waiting for us in the morning. We are beginning to realize that all of our experiences during the day, all of our thoughts, emotions, and mental attitudes, the multitude of little things which seem to make but a feeling impression are not in reality lost every day leaves its photographic records on the brain and these records are never erased or destroyed they simply drop into the unconscious mind and are ever on call they may not come at once in response to our summons but they are still there and are often many years after they have dropped into the subconscious mind reproduced with their original vividness I heard recently of a prominent banker who lost a very important key, the only one to the bank treasures. He claimed that it had not been lost in the ordinary way, but stolen. Suspicion at once attached to the employees. A prominent detective was placed in the bank, and after watching and questioning everyone on the staff, he became convinced that none but the banker himself knew anything about the key. Every detective is necessarily something of a mind reader and this one, believing firmly in his own theory, suggested a simple plan for recovering the key. He told the banker to quit suspecting the employees and worrying about burglars getting the bank's treasures, to relax his overwrought mind and go to sleep with the belief that he himself had put the key away somewhere, and that it would be found in the morning. If you do this, he said, I believe the mystery will be solved. The banker, to the best of his ability, did as the detective suggested and on getting up the following morning he was instinctively led to a certain secret place and behold there was the key he was not conscious that he had put it there but after finding it he had a faint recollection of previously going to this place the bankers objective or conscious mind was probably busy with something else when he put the key away only his subconscious self had any knowledge of what he was doing then when he missed the key his fears his worry his anxiety, his suspicions, and generally wrought-up mental attitude made it impossible for his subjective mind to reveal the secret to him. But after his mind had become poised, and he was again in tune with his subjective intelligence, the information was passed along. Dr. Hack Took, a distinguished English authority on the subject, the memory freed from distraction as it sometimes is, he says, is so vivid as to enable the sleeper to recall events which happened years before and which had been entirely forgotten. Now, as we have seen, the subconscious mind can perform real work, real service for us. Why should we not use it, especially during sleep? Why should we not avail ourselves of this enormous creative force to strengthen all our powers and possibilities, to peace out, virtually to lengthen our time, our lives? Think of what it would mean to us in a lifetime if we could keep these sleepless creative functions always in superb condition so that they would go on during the night working out our problems, unraveling our difficulties, carrying forward our plans while we sleep. We have sufficient proof already to show that they do actual constructive work. But the testimony of Dr. Tuch on this point is of interest, that the exercise of thought, and this on a high level, is consistent with sleep, can hardly be doubted," he writes. Arguments are employed in debate which are not always illogical. We dreamed one night, subsequent to a lively conversation with a friend on spiritualism, that we instituted a number of test experiments in reference to it. The nature of these tests was retained vividly in the memory after awakening. They were by no means wanting in ingenuity, and proved that the mental operations were in good form. It is now established beyond a doubt that certain parts of the brain continue active during the night when the rest of it is under the anesthetic of sleep. But we have hardly begun to realize what a tremendous ally this sleepless, creative part of the brain can be in our mental development. It is well known that most of the growth of the child, of its skeleton, muscles, nerves, and all of the 12 different kinds of tissues in the body takes place during sleep that there is comparatively little during the activities of the day. It is not so well understood that our minds also grow during the night, that they develop along the lines of the ideals, thoughts, and emotions with which we feed them before retiring. All the analogies go to prove that the mind is always awake, says M. joffre The mind during sleep is not in a special mood or state, but goes on and develops itself absolutely as in the waking hours. As a matter of fact, we never awake just the same being as when we went to sleep. We are either better or worse. We changed while we slept. While our senses are wrapped in slumber, the subjective mind is busily at work. It is either building up or tearing down. It is my firm belief that by an intelligent, systematic direction of this sleepless faculty of the brain, we can actually make it create for us along the line of our desires. As it is... Most people, by not putting the mind in proper condition before going to sleep, not only do not intelligently use this marvelous creative agency, but they destroy all possibility of beneficial results from its action. It is as necessary to prepare the mind for sleep as it is to prepare the body. The following offers some suggestions on this point. Preparing the Mind for Sleep not long ago, I heard a young lady say that it was impossible for any woman to look charming or to be agreeable right after getting up in the morning. The Reverend Dr. Bushnell declared that, a man must be next to a devil who wakes angry. The way we feel when we awake in the morning depends on how we were feeling or thinking when we went to sleep. If we retire holding a grudge against a neighbor with the resolve to get square with somebody who has injured us, if we have hatred or jealousy in our heart, if we are envious of another's success, and if we go to sleep nursing these feelings, we awake in a depressed, exhausted state, feeling bitter, pessimistic, irritable, unhappy, about as nearly like a devil as possible for a human being to feel. The destroyer was at work all night, running amok among the delicate brain and nerve cells, furiously tearing down what beneficent nature had taken such pains to upbuild. But when we take pleasant, kindly, loving thoughts to bed with us, we awake refreshed in a happy contented frame of mind. Our sleepless faculties spent the hours in upbuilding, performing friendly offices for us during the night. Few people ever think of preparing the mind for sleep, yet it is even more necessary than it is to prepare the body. Most of us take great pains to put the latter in order. We undress, take a warm bath, massage the face with some sort of refreshing salve cold cream or oil we make sure that our sleeping room is properly ventilated and that our bed is clean and comfortable but to the matter of preparing our minds we don't give a thought instead of making our subconscious mental processes built for us in the night we allow them to tear down much of what we have built during the day many of us grow old haggard and wrinkled in the night just when the reverse ought to be the case For nature herself has ordained that night should be the building, the renewing time of life. If we were only to prepare the mind for sleep with the same intelligence and care that we prepare the body, if we were to give it a cleansing mental bath, wiping from memory slate all black discordant pictures, all the worries and fears which vexed and perplexed us during the day instead of having the nightmare panorama passing and repassing before us during the night, Robbing us of needed rest and neutralizing our upbuilding recuperative forces—what a difference it would make in our achievement in our lives! I know men whose lives have been revolutionized by adopting the practice of putting themselves in a harmonious condition, getting in tune with the infinite before going to sleep. Formerly, they were in the habit of retiring in a bad mood, tired, discouraged, over-anticipated evils, worrying about all sorts of things they would discuss their misfortunes at night with their wives and then fall to thinking over the unfortunate condition in their affairs, their mistakes, and possible evil consequences that might result from them. Naturally, their minds were in an upset condition when they fell asleep, and, as might have been expected, the melancholy, black, ugly pictures of the misfortunes they feared, vividly exaggerated in the stillness of the night, became etched deeper and deeper on their brains and did their baleful work, making the real rest and reinvigorating absolutely impossible. When they reformed their habits, changed their thought, and retired in a peaceful frame of mind with the intention of going to sleep, instead of tossing about thinking of their troubles, their business straight away began to improve. They were stronger, fresher, more vigorous, more resourceful, better able to cope with difficulties to make plans and carry them out than when they were depleting their physical and mental resources by robbing themselves of their best friend, nature's restorative sleep. Many people tell me they cannot stop thinking after they go to bed. Their brains are so active, doing their next day's work, that they cannot stop the mental processes for hours. Of course you cannot stop all thinking the first night you begin to form the new habit, when you have practiced the old night thinking habit for years when perhaps as far back as you can remember, you have gone to bed every night worrying, worrying, thinking, thinking, planning, planning ahead for days, for weeks, for months, planning ahead perhaps for the coming year. But if you persist and make it a cast-iron rule to allow no anxieties or fears, no business troubles or discords of any kind to enter your bedchamber, you will succeed in accomplishing your object. Think of your chamber as the one place sacred to rest, where the things that trouble and harass and vex during the daytime shall find no entrance. Put this legend over the door or in some conspicuous place where you can see it. This is my holy of holies, the place of supreme peace and power in my life from which all discord must be shut out. When you undress and lie down, say to yourself, I have done my best during the day. Now I'm going to drop thinking Drop worrying and planning and get good, refreshing sleep to prepare me for tomorrow's work. Clear your mind not only of all anxious, worrying business thoughts, but also of all ill will or hatred toward another. Resolve that you will not harbor an unpleasant, bitter, or unkind thought of any human being. That you will wipe off the slate of your memory everything you have ever had against anyone that you will forget whatever is unpleasant in the past and start with a clean slate. Just imagine the words harmony, peace, love, goodwill to every living creature are emblazoned in letters of light all over the walls of your room. Repeat them over and over until that other self, that personal secretary just below the threshold of your consciousness, becomes saturated with the ideas they convey and after a while you will drop into slumber with a serene, poised mind, a mind filled with happy, joyous, creative thoughts. Of course, until a new habit is fixed, thoughts will intrude themselves in spite of you, but you needn't harbor them. You needn't allow yourself under any circumstances to go on thinking about business or any discordant thing after you retire any more than you would allow a madman to slash you with a knife without making an attempt to defend yourself. You can if you only persist in the new and better way, fall asleep every night like a tired child, and awake in the morning just as refreshed and happy. Your subconscious self will, after a while, carry out your behests without any conscious effort on your part. This sleepless subconscious self is, in fact, one of the most effective agents man has to help him accomplish whatever he desires. Insomnia, for instance, which is the curse of so many Americans, may be entirely overcome by its aid. If you are a victim of insomnia and go to bed every night with the thought firmly fixed in your consciousness that you are not going to sleep, you are, to a great extent, the victim of your belief. The conviction in your subconscious mind that there is something the matter with your sleeping ability is largely responsible for the continuance of your trouble. We know by experience that we can convince ourselves of almost anything by affirming it long enough and often enough. The constant repetition after a while establishes the belief in our minds that the thing is true. We can establish the sleep habit just as easily as any other habit. It is perfectly possible, by means of affirmation, the constant repetition in heart-to-heart talks with yourself to regain your power to sleep normally. Your subconscious self, that side of your nature, which presides over the involuntary or automatic functions during sleep, as well as while you are awake, as, for instance, walking and other things which do not require volition of the mind or special willpower can be made to obey your commands, or rather suggestions, to overcome insomnia. Say to this inner self, You know there is no reason why you should not sleep. There is no defect in your physical or mental makeup which keeps you awake. You ought to sleep soundly so many hours every night. There is no reason why you should not, and you are going to do so tonight. Repeat similar affirmations during the day. Say to yourself, This sleeplessness is only a bad habit. If you were ill physically or mentally, if you had any serious defect in your nervous system which would give you an excuse for insomnia, it would be a different thing. But you haven't anything of the sort. You are simply the slave of senseless obsession, and you are going to break it up. You are going to begin right away. You are going to sleep better tonight, tomorrow night, and the next night. You are going to get through with this boogie you have built up in your imagination which has no existence in reality. Nothing keeps you awake but your conviction, your fear that you are not going to sleep. Prepare your mind for sleep in the way already suggested by emptying it of all worry and fear, all envy and uncharitableness, everything that disturbs, irritates or excites. Crowd these out with thoughts of joy, of good cheer, of things which will help and inspire. Compose yourself with the belief that you will go to sleep easily and naturally. Relax every muscle and say to yourself in a quiet, drowsy voice, I am so sleepy, so sleepy, so sleepy. The subconscious self will listen and in a short time will automatically put your suggestion into practice. It is needless to say that if insomnia is a result of bad or irregular habits, the victim must first change all his habits before he can expect any relief. Man is a bundle of habits. We perform most of our life functions with greater or less regularity so that they become practically automatic. Regularity, system, order are imperative for our health, our success, and our happiness. This is especially true in regard to sleep. We must sleep regular hours, be systematic in our habits, or our sleep is likely to suffer. If you play as hard as you work, refresh and rejuvenate yourself by pleasant recreation and a jolly good time when your work is done. And then, at a regular hour every night, prepare your mind for sleep, just as you would prepare your body. Give it a mental bath and clothe it in beautiful thoughts. You will in a short time establish the habit of sound, peaceful, refreshing sleep. Whatever else you do or do not, form the habit of making a call on the great within of yourself before retiring leave there the message of uplift, of self-betterment and self-enlargement, that which you yearn for and long to realize, but do not know just how to attain. Registering this call, this demand for something higher and nobler in your subconsciousness, putting it right up to yourself, will work like a leaven during the night, and after a while, all the building forces within you will unite and further in your aim in helping you to realize your vision, whatever it may be. The period of sleep may be made a wonderful period of growth for the mind as well as for the body. It is a time when you can attract your desires. It is a propitious time to nurse your vision. Instead of making an enemy of your subconscious self by giving it destructive thoughts to work with, explosives that will destroy much of what you have accomplished during the day, make it your friend by giving it strong, creative, helpful thoughts with which to go on creating building for you during the night. There are marvelous possibilities for health and character, success and happiness building during sleep. Every thought dropped into the subconscious mind before we go to sleep is a seed that will germinate in the night while we are unconscious and ultimately bring forth a harvest of its kind. By impressing upon it our desires, picturing as vividly as possible our ideals, what we wish to become, and what we long to accomplish, we will be surprised to see how quickly that wonderful force in the subjective self will begin to shape the pattern, to copy the model which it is given. In this way, we can correct habits which are wounding our self-respect, humiliating us, marring our usefulness and efficiency, perhaps sapping our lives. We can get rid of faults and imperfections we can strengthen our weak faculties and overcome vicious tendencies which the willpower may not be strong enough to correct in the daytime. If, as now seems clear, the subconscious mind can build or destroy, can make us happy or miserable according to the pattern we give it before going to sleep, if it can solve the problems of the inventor, of the discoverer, of the troubled businessman, why do we not use it more? Why do we not avail ourselves of this tremendous, mysterious force for life-building, character-building, success-building, happiness-building, instead of for life-destroying? One reason is that we are only just beginning to discover that we can control the secondary self or intelligence, which regulates all the functions of the body without the immediate orders of the objective self. We are getting a glimpse of what it is capable of doing by experiments upon hypnotized subjects. When the objective mind, the mind which gets most of its material through the five senses is shut off and the other, the subjective mind, is in control. We are finding that it is comparatively easy while a person is in a hypnotic state to make wonderful changes in disposition and to correct vicious habits, mental and moral defects through suggestion. There is no doubt that so far as the subjective mind is concerned, we are in a similar condition when asleep as when in a hypnotic trance. And experiments have shown that marvelous results are possible, especially in the case of children, by talking to them during their sleep, advising them, counseling them, suggesting things that are for their good. Parents should teach their children how to prepare their minds for sleep so that the subconscious self would create produce something beautiful instead of the black discordant images of fear which so often terrorize little ones before they fall asleep and when they wake up in the dark hours of the night. How often have we noticed the troubled, fearful expression on the face of a sleeping child who was sent to bed with anger thoughts, with fear thoughts in its mind after a severe scolding or perhaps a whipping. A child should never be scolded or frightened or teased, especially just before bedtime. It should be encouraged to fall asleep in its sweetest happiest mood in the spirit of love then its sleeping face will reflect the love spirit and the child will awaken in the same spirit as though it had been talking with angels while it slept children are peculiarly susceptible to the influence of our thoughts our suggestions to them during sleep their character can be molded to a great extent their ability developed their faults eradicated and their weak points strengthened during sleep. In some ways, the suggestions made to them in that state have more effect than those made to them when awake. Because while the objective mind often scatters and fails to reproduce what is presented to it, the subjective mind gradually absorbs and reflects every suggestion. Many mothers have found this true, especially in correcting bad habits which seemed almost impossible to reach while the children were awake if you want to make your child beautiful in character in disposition in person think beautiful thoughts into its mind as it falls asleep speak to it of beautiful things while it sleeps i believe the time will come when much of the child's training will be affected during sleep its aesthetic faculties the love of music of art of all things noble and beautiful special talents and latent possibilities of all kinds will be developed through suggestion In the marvelous interior creative forces lies the great secret of life. And blessed is he who findeth it. Doubly blessed is he who findeth it at the start of life.